you have to apoyar, you have support. to support your local farmers around uh, your neighbors, uh, your neighborhoods, you know, your your the people close to you who, who are producing food in a sustainable way. And and that and I think the movie is a great way of having that conversation because there if there's a theme in the movie which is what are the mat the material conditions for the next generation of farmers to be able to farm that's happening in the whole world it's not only uh, something that's happening in Puerto Rico it's happening in, in the global farming community. Welcome to the 309th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, community food systems, and local democracy. I'm Elizabeth McCarowitz, Membership Support Specialist at the Land Stewardship Project. Land access is a common struggle for emerging farmers globally. New generations of farmers want to farm in sustainable, regenerative ways and provide food for their families and communities but struggle to find land and a path to sustainable income. On June 3rd and 4th, 2023, there will be an opportunity to learn more about how farmers in Puerto Rico are working to meet this challenge during a pair of LSP screenings of the documentary, Stewards of the Land, or Serán las Dueñas de la Tierra, by Puerto Rican filmmakers Mario Gaurias Cruz and Juan Manuel Pagan Teitelbaum. The June 3rd screening will be in Northfield, Minnesota, and on June 4th, the film will be shown in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in partnership with Copal, Minnesota, sharing our roots and commons land. This film follows the stories of three beginning farmers in Puerto Rico as they build relationships and find creative ways to access land to grow food for their communities. Those familiar with LSP's farm beginnings and land access programs will see many similarities between the challenges faced by these three farmers featured in Stewards of the Land and the types of barriers LSP members and organizers are working to break down. These young farmers are idealistic and care deeply about finding meaningful work that will benefit their communities and address the challenges of a rapidly changing climate. Of course, a key difference is that Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States and lacks the same rights and privileges of those with, of us with statehood. In early May, I, along with Ryan Perez, who is the policy director of Copal, Minnesota, as well as a former LSP staffer, joined a Zoom call with the producers of Stewards of the Land for a nuanced discussion of the themes their documentary brings to the fore. In the following conversation, you'll learn more about the shared struggles and strategies of beginning farmers in Puerto Rico and how we can build solidarity for a food and farming system that creates health and wealth for both people and the planet. My name is uh, Juan Manuel Pagan Teitelbaum. I'm a Puerto Rican filmmaker uh, that lives in Puerto Rico, and I used to be a farmer. Uh, I've been farming on and off uh, throughout my life. I studied um, filmmaking in college here in Puerto Rico. And uh, when I was around uh, 28 years old, I moved to a farm of my family where I started farming up in the mountains of Utuado. And at that time, I met Mariolga Reyes Cruz, who's uh, my partner in, in life and in our projects. While I was living up there um, in the mountains uh, doing farming, uh, I started filming my neighbor farmers People who I was learning from, I started doing short documentaries about their work. And that's how 
uh, we started uh, documenting for the last decade the movement of sustainable agriculture in Puerto Rico. Um, it started, you know, kind of like doing it uh, as a personal project, and then it converted into a series that we did with the Department of uh, Agriculture of the United States and Puerto Rico, where we made like 10 short documentaries about sustainable farming in Puerto Rico, trying to showcase what was possible, trying to put a face on the new generation of farmers, which had, you know, different ages, young, old. It was our first project that started documenting this movement. And we were worried that we were we weren't showing the struggles or the challenges of uh, farming, not only in this capitalist society, but, you know, with the climate crisis. So, and that's how we decided to do this movie, Stewards of the Land, Serán las Dueñas de la Tierra. Hi, um, saludos to everybody. Um, I'm Maria Olga Reyes Cruz. As a, I am a community psychologist and ethnographer by training. And um, I've been in relationship with Wamapan, Tetelbaum, uh, for over 10 years. And um, one of the many projects that we've done together, and perhaps the the the, mo the one that has sort of um, moved us to where we're at right now, the, the, the current project that I'll speak about later, is um, documenting the agroecological movement in Puerto Rico, in part because we recognize the importance of, of farming to carve sovereignty in Puerto Rico, and, and also because we started seeing the need to sort of draw a different imaginary of what could be and what life could be in Puerto Rico that's more um, self, uh, that how, how we can carve a life in Puerto Rico that is sustainable, that makes us happy, that is um, guided by other kinds of relationships with nature and our communities that are sort of opening spaces for a post-capitalist life. We we had this sort of um, when we met. I was actually involved in education organizing as a non tenure faculty at the uni at the public university in Puerto Rico, and Wamo was very active in the agroecological movement. And when we got together, we basically recognized that what he was doing at a very small scale needed to be broadened so that we could amplify and democratize the discussion about um, food sovereignty and and also the climate crisis in Puerto Rico. So this process led us to first say, well, let's show what we can do and what is done, you know, against all the narrative that farming is not sustainable and we, we depend on imports. Puerto Rico um, imports 85% of its Food. And then, like Wama said, we, mm -hmm. we also knew that we had to show the struggles. So that's how Serán las Dueñas de la Tierra came about, which is mm -hmm. a documentary, a feature-length documentary, where we follow the lives of three farmers, three young farmers who, who are committed to agroecology. And we started filming when they were entering for the first time to these farms that had been 
in a natural state for many decades. And we follow their their day-to-day struggles for three years, starting in 2016. And the last scenes we filmed in 2020, actually. Can we go back a little bit to what you were saying about democratizing the conversation around food sovereignty? Um, What do you mean by that? Well, the in Puerto Rico, uh, in, like in many places that where the green quote unquote green, green revolution took hold and the industrialization of farming took hold, um, in Puerto Rico, when people talk about farming, they talk about agrobusiness, right? And 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 so the conversation it's very rarely about what we need and how to do it sustainably and in a way that makes sense for farmers and for consumers. And, and it goes to, you know, the, the issues of how to make sure that you have a successful business. That, that's sort of the dominant narrative, right? And when, when I met Wama and he was already engaged in the, with Organización Boricua de Agricultura Ecológica, which is the, the oldest organization in Puerto Rico that groups um, agroecological farmers, the conversations there were very different. They were about where to get seeds, how to learn from each other, how to farm uh, differently with nature, how to sustain their labor. And, and also, you know, trying trying to, trying to um, find markets for their, for their harvest in a way that could also sustain communities that don't necessarily have access to. But these conversations were being had within the movement, right? Most people didn't really understand much about agroecology or how it was done and who, what can be done. So that's why we started filming and filming for other audiences, right? So we wanted in a way to amplify and make it as popular <laughs> as possible, right? Uh, mainstream as possible. Mm-hmm. The conversation, the practices, how it looks, how it feels. And so so the the short the, sh- the short series um help us do that because they were also in a format that went um to internet people it was word to mouth people could use it in different spaces to have conversations and we try to do the same thing with the documentary so in in the way that well in a, in a way um because the documentary had to be shown in in commercial theaters we did it in a way that to try to ensure that as that it would be shown across the archipelago and that people who normally wouldn't even think about agriculture would would be interested and would bring other people to see it. I wanted to ask a question of you, Marioga, about like your training as an ethnographer. Um, and you said psychology as well. Has any part of that training been useful in like the evaluation of these projects or like how can you sort of, not that we have to put a measure on everything, like I try to resist that, but like what what have the results been of your project and how has your um, background been useful in kind of looking at those? Yeah, well, I think that 
For me, as a community psychologist and ethnographer, it was very natural to understand the documentary medium and and also to produce for documentaries. So the um, the ideas about, you know, how just to observe, follow, make questions, try to show rather than tell mm. the story. Of course, I love writing and I, yeah, I write, but it's, it's different to, to tell. And, you know, and many, many documentaries that, that people are used to seeing, they tell you what's going on, right? They, you have experts telling you what the situation is and so on. Um, one of the things that characterize our work from the get go is, try to show the process, try to show what it feels to be at a farm, to, to steward the land, right? To, to try to make the best of, of a process. So for me, it was, it was almost uh, natural to move to that medium. Um, of course, ethnographers want to document more that you can actually document in a documentary, right? Because what do you do with hours and hours and hours and hours of film when you when when you want to create a series that's ten minutes, you know, every every episode or an hour and a half? So there is something about also shaping that story, which is always there, right? It's not like we're showing it as it happened. We're also carving the story from what we are seeing. So that's that was for me was it's been like perfect in that sense. Also because academic work could be very closed, right? Very siloed. And as a public intellectual, for me, it's more important to have the public conversations mm-hmm. and to do it with um, documentaries is is perfect because we we have, have seen how people just connect not only rationally but emotionally to stories that also speak to their own lives. And that's a very different place from where to have a conversation rather than saying what we believe politically or ethically, right? Connecting from experience to then talk about the politics and then talk about the ethics. It's a different place to have the conversation. So we haven't, we haven't uh, proposed or said it to ourselves to do any kind of systematic evaluation like you were asking. But what what we have also seen, observed, is people's reaction to what we do, right? And um, Wama keeps tracks about, for example, how many people have seen the short documentaries in YouTube through the years. The public television continues to broadcast them as a series that is more than 10 years old. And people still like comment on it. And with the documentary, it was, I mean, frankly, we thought that it was going to go to the theaters for one or two weeks. And then we were off the, you know, off the road um, <laughs> with the film forums. But that's not what happened. It stayed in theaters for 10 weeks. People took up on themselves to get everybody to see it. You know, people would go more than once. 
bring their parents, bring their, bring their friends. They took the, com- the, the pack campaign on their own. They posted themselves in, you know, in front of the, the posters and with the, the tickets. And it took its, uh, um, a life on its own. And we already had plans for the, a, a social impact campaign, you know, to do film forums and so on. So it caught us like sort of in the middle of that. And people started asking to bring the documentary to community centers, public plazas, public schools, private schools, everywhere. And Wama has done any presentations? 30 already. Uh, uh, close, over 30 presentations. That's besides the, the uh, film festival circuit. And we still get invited to bring the documentary and to and and we we uh, when we can you know as, as if we can and it's i think it's most most of the presentations we've been able to bring the farmers or at least one mm-hmm. of the farmers mm-hmm. to have the conversation because it's not just to see it it's to talk about it and that goes back to democratizing the conversation you know to take it out of the small circles that are trying to to take root, but also to the public who ultimately can support them and support the policies that support the farmers. And um, in our tours around uh, the United States, especially on the, we've only been on the East uh, Coast and Chicago recently, recently, there was always an ask, ask of the public how they could help the farmers in Puerto Rico. And we would always say, that's great. I mean, we do need help. I mean, one way of helping is changing local politics of the United States, which would have an impact in, in the whole world. But the other way is that you have to apoyar, you have support. to support your local farmers around uh, your neighbors, uh, your neighborhoods, you know, your, st- your the people close to you who, who are producing food in a sustainable way and and that and i think the movie is a great way of having that conversation because there if there's a theme in the movie which is what are the the material conditions uh, for the next generation of farmers to be able to farm that's happening in the whole world it's not only uh, something that's happening in puerto rico it's happening in, in the global farming community there's a group of bipoc farmers in minnesota um that has come together to um, create this sort of inter- intersectional term to define themselves. And so they call themselves emerging farmers and emerging is different from beginning. It's meant to encapsulate some more pieces. So it refers to something that, that is starting to exist or something which is just beginning to be noticed in this regard. Emerging farmers encompasses both those individuals who are entirely new to farming as well as those individuals who've been farming for generations but were outside of the scope of traditional state and federal agricultural support programs and that was actually pulled from our Minnesota Department of Agriculture's website like they've they've adopted the term and are talking about emerging farmers as this like different category here in the state and developing policies um, using that definition. So I think your film is really going to resonate with that group of farmers here in Minnesota, these emerging farmers whose primary barrier to pursuing a career in agriculture is land access. (laughs) That's global. 
what do you think about that categorization that I just described? Is it new to you? Do you see any similarities to the farmers that you featured in the film? And like, how is it different from the farmers that you work with? I would say that most of the protagonists in our film are emerging, were or were emerging farmers when we started filming. Uh, I mean, Jan Pagan had been uh, farming for 10 years in his uh, in his house where he grew up. Like he, he had a a garden for the for 10 years he was producing food for his family in a small farmer's market before he started farming in this uh, 69 acre farm um alfredo also was a farmer who would who practiced farming with his family and grandfather for decades so these are farmers who who had already uh contact with farming and a smaller scale and and Stephanie comes from a, a farming family they were they had a coffee plantation and she did help with all the uh, work there um when she was uh, little yeah there is a, a they are i mean the film does depict emerging farmers that's a term I didn't, uh, I didn't know or I didn't coin that way. So it's, I'm glad to hear about it. I think in Latin America, they're, they're also reconceptualizing and, and rethinking some of these concepts to try to reflect what has happened in the last 500 years mm -hmm. and also what is happening with the people who are reclaiming farming. As, as a dignified and necessary. Okay. Just so let me see. If, um, just to recap, uh, what, what we've been observing is that there is a resignification of agriculture, um, and a recognition of the long 500 years of, of exploitation, right? Because part of, part of it is under what conditions people are able to produce food. And so some of the terms that we've heard is neo which is sort of new peasant, um, and also recampesinar. Can you, sorry, can you repeat the first term? Neo-jíbaro. Oh, neo-jíbaro. is the, the peasant, the Puerto Rican peasant. Also neo-rurales has been a term that I've heard to just to mark that there are people who are Turning back, you know, turning away from cities or, or from, you know, that, that notion of progress or uh, development, um, quote unquote, and, um, and sort of reclaiming the rural life. And, and also the idea of recampesinar, which is to strengthen mm. the peasantry or, or become peasants again or recognize um that that life that's sort of the conversations here because and just just to just to add some clarity in english that word peasant can have negative connotations but in spanish the idea of the campesino can have a lot of pride right Hibaro has a lot of pride of the connection to the land and Mm. Uh, the, as a rural person who is a, a steward, right, of a land or a participant in, in farm work. So those things can have a lot of like orgullo, a lot of pride versus, you know, in the English way of using that word is, is, is can be different. So, yeah. And, and these are, these are not uncontested terms because they're racial issues, um, behind it and so on. But, but I guess, 
to the to the question of emerging farmers, I think there is a recognition, and it's sort of it's one of the things that uh, one of the protagonists explains in the movie is the impact that it had. You know, sort of the the um, Operation Bootstraps in Puerto Rico and the whole push to turn to turn what was an agrarian society with all its inequality and racism and colonialism to turn it into an industrial um, economy and sort of um, moving towards the cities. And, and that movement, it came also with, with a lot of baggage and how it was how the how the countryside was valued and and the work of the of the people who actually produce food not not the landowners but the people who produce the food so it's a very you know it's it's a, i think it's a story that repeats itself in many places with its particularities and it it we're at a moment where people are resignifying what it means not only conceptually but in practice uh, Elizabeth, the, I, I'll add the, the feeling of it in Minnesota is oftentimes that sometimes it, it's almost voiced because Minnesota has mostly white farmers, white, white American farmers, and that as though the communities that live here that are communities of color, that are immigrant communities, don't have long family histories, sometimes in their own generation of taking care of land or taking care of crops in many ways. And so uh, our, our climate framework is exploring the narrative of climate migration where, you know, people are moving from rural areas into cities in their home countries and then eventually to the United States. And we need to be countering the narrative where, you know, emerging farmers, maybe that's a, maybe that's a good term. Maybe, I don't know, but more importantly, countering this narrative where, you know, it's like, Oh, we're just discovering farming. I remember a, a conversation with, uh, with some farmers in Minnesota who someone told me, oh, you know, we really want to help people of color farm. We need to teach them how to farm. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, we're in an immigrant organization where so many people have come from directly from farming families in, in, in many countries. So, you know, so I love that um, what Marioga said about reconnecting that 500 years of, of history of, of telling that this is a this is an agricultural or a farming narrative that is historic for our communities I mean and and I, I let maybe we should be clear with this the history of agriculture is also a history of exploitation within the long colonial history um, that we share in this continent so um, exploitation of the the people who were, already there with their own um, logics on how to relate to land and to producing food and the people who were brought, brought as slaves. So I, one of our com the conversations that we have here is that um, reclaiming farming is, is also is, it has is also has to be a decolonial move in the sense that, you know, even even the definition of what a farmer is is the is the one who holds the land, not necessarily the one who produces food. Mm -hmm. And um, and so we're using farmer just as the person who is taking care of the land and producing food. We we're not making the distinction, and we know it's you know it's sort of so it's it's also a way of, of reclaiming just you know you work with the land, but then the relationship with the land 
And I'm not going to say a lot about this because I don't know how much you saw of the film and we want people to go see it. But at the end of the day, after following these farmers for over three years, the relationship and who holds the land became the issue for them. Not the farming practices, but actually being able to hold the land. We've already talked a lot about this, but I want to dig just a little bit deeper because this is, yeah, this conversation is happening here as well. Um, and also with Indigenous folks here in Minnesota. I had a conversation with, her name's Waziatawin. She's a Dakota um, woman who's bringing back Indigenous food systems and way of caring for the land in this region. And she, um, this was a couple of years ago, but she shared with me that she doesn't really like the word steward. And, you know, the direct translation in Spanish is owner. And to her, that's very, you know, it kind of comes from this Judeo-Christian tradition of man having dominion over the land. And indigenous cultures in North America, you know, we're all related. Um, all beings are related. And it's much more about interconnection than dominion. So I wanted I wanted to hear from you about how you think about that word steward. And I, yeah, language is really imperfect. And um, tell me, tell me how you think about um, those terms. Well, I mean, the the. The title of, of the documentary comes out of um, the... Land reform. The Agrarian land reform of 1941. Yeah, sort of the mm. the current... La, Ley de tierras. So the, the law... I mean, I the law of the land. I don't know if it translates as the law of the land. But um, La Ley de tierras the, of 1941... That when you read when you read it, it sounds like a sort of a communist manifesto of the 30s, right? <laughs> um, and basically, what it was saying is, it's close to what the Mexican Revolution was saying, right? That the land should be owned by the people who work the land, uh, not by some foreign or other powerful um, people who are not tied to that land. And so we we literally pull from uh, that that um, part of the of the law that says the land should be um, las, du las dueñas de la tierra, the landowners should be the ones who who care for the land. Um, knowing perfectly well that we are him and I are in a different place. <laughs> we're actually, as we were finishing the film, we embark in another major project which mm. was to uh, about this one, uh, this. yeah <laughs> um, 10 years before this movie we were already organizing and between um uh sustainable farmer organizations um conversations about land tenure because mm -hmm. we are we already saw the problem of access to land and and also of that relationship of human beings to land, you know, that thing of ownership or not. And we did have some conversations in Casa Pueblo, which is an organization in the mountains who has been fighting against uh, uh, mining. mining in the mountains of Puerto Rico. They had a very important uh, um, struggle and they won. So we had conversations there with many groups of farmers about land tenure. So we've been thinking about this 
through our all our, our time since we've been related to farming. So 10 years para adelante, while we're filming the movie, uh, Hurricanes Maria and Irma come through Puerto Rico, which uh, have been the mo the worst hurricanes uh, till you know since we're since we have recorded history, and um, you know the disaster capitalism started happening in Puerto Rico. We started seeing people, uh, you know, with money doing land grabs around the island. And while we've, when you see the movie, you'll see that's related to the movie also that we saw that our farmers were, had, had struggles to stay in the, in the land they were farming. And so we decided that we had to do something else. And we, you know, for the last 10 years, we've been trying to find out a way, a project, a transition project as to our relation to the land. Right. And, and we, I mean, we, we see it as transition projects because we recognize we are in a particular relationship with the United States and with a particular uh, legal system. And so those conversations were, okay, so how we can hold land collectively without it being threatened by the market, right? And so those those conversations ended in in a, in a decision that we made with with a group of people of forming the first community land trust, the first agricultural community land trust in Puerto Rico. So it's a transition project, recognizing that what dominates the land is the notion of property, of private property, and that one of the responses within the system that people can can um, make is to pull land outside of that game, right? And to form land commons. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so that's the the road that we're tra uh, traveling right now, knowing that it's imperfect, that it requires uh, to carve an imaginary that that was totally depleted from us. And that's a, you know, that's a different <laughs> conversation in terms of how much we can pull from what the in, in our indigenous ancestors knew on how to relate to land. In Puerto Rico, there was a major genocide. And, and we, even though we, we have their traces, we don't have their, their points of view. We don't, there's no abuela to ask how to manage common lands. I'm saying this as a risk because I'm sure people in Puerto Rico are like, of course, my but it's it's not part of the public discussion. And that's why I was saying democratizing the discussion also means making political things that might be knowledge in a particular community or in a particular family, but it's not part of the public debate and it's, it doesn't become political in that sense. Mm -hmm. So with the Fideicomiso de Tierras Comunitarias para la Agricultura Sostenible, we are starting to have that conversation to decommodify de de land. And this week we we signed the first land donation to the land trust. Congratulations. And just to note that, um, you know, some people 
might be might have heard about land trusts, but this is a community land trust. And what's different uh, between a conservation land trust and a community land trust is that the people who live on the you know geographic you know the lands are part of the the governance. Uh, the people who make the decisions of what's going to happen. That's different about a conservation land trust that, you know, there's a, a board that who knows, so, you know, they're pinned, you know, they're picked from by other forces. And we thought that as if the people who work the land are going to make the decisions and as a group where everybody is going to be part, you know, of this process, there would be a uh, better stewardship, you know, or better taking care mm-hmm. Of a better relationship to other living beings and to the land that sustains us. And, and it also means that the ownership is collective. The ownership is in trust, right? For generations. So we, we want to have the conversations about securing tenancy without putting at risk the land in the market. And there's a lot of pressures in, in Puerto Rico and I know and, and to sell and I know in the United States also uh, with the push of, of uh, building the sustainable, the renewable energy infrastructure. infrastructure on top of farmland because it's, you know, easier for them because it's already flat. They don't have to do anything, but they're destroying uh, the spaces that we need to grow our foods. Now, now I have heard that all about the Bitcoin operations and other uh, tech companies, you know, moving to the island, buying land uh, to, as well um, for, you know, what previously I know it was, it was pharmaceuticals, but different industry that continues to, you know, be uh, this this profitable international game, corporate game. Uh, and and so I really, you know, admired it. And I'm so excited to hear about stories of excitement and progress uh you know like like moving forward on on a land trust like that yeah and we we're also struggling with um with short term in the logic of the short term rentals and the the visitor economy so everything is moving towards serving people who come through you know puerto rico and um so there there you know a housing crisis a land access crisis and you know Community land trusts are just one one way in which you know, we can carve spaces where they operate under a different logic and for different with a different ethic. Yeah, and now uh, it's it's very common uh, for the farmers who can or are able to be successfully economically. And I put my fingers up. I don't know how you say that. And uh, you know, uh, quote unquote, quote unquote, successful. <laughs> Um, that they make enough money to buy their land and they feel that they are protecting the land because they, they were able to have, uh, individual private property rights of the land. And what we're seeing is that even if that maybe could be true, it's, you know, the possibility that the second generation or third generation wants to farm is not always the, the case, right? And we've seen it. Uh, we're seeing it all around the world where people, if you go to the college and study something else, you know, everybody's pushing the next generation to study or, you know, be a professional, be a electrician or whatever. So not necessarily that's going to be the choice of the next generation. And the, then the land is sold to the highest bidder because, uh, you know, 
the next generation doesn't want to farm. So then there's that question of how do we take care of farmland as a common goods or as a as a commons? As a commons? Um, are we going to consider the right to eat and you know the right for food? And then if if we have a right to for for food, the land? How are we going to consider farming land? Like what what's what's going to be our plan to protect farmland to for future generations? Well, I'm excited for you to be in Minnesota, and I hope we can get there. There are lots of people working on community commons here in our communities, and they all look a little bit different because well, every community is different, and also state by state like the laws are different about what land ownership can look like and governance and all of those things but we're seeing a lot of really interesting models pop up there are no you know there's no one solution or you know one you know silver whatever and i don't even want to finish that sentence but uh that phrase but there's no one solution to very complex problems and systemic long-standing problems but we we do um, work from from the understanding that we are in transition. We are in the middle of a climate and civilizatory crisis. We are in transition to something else. What that something else is, it's in our hands. Um, it could go either way, and so we are trying to to carve. Material, basic material conditions for people to stay and to actually grow in in relationship with nature and with each other. That's beautiful. <laughs> Makes it a little hopeful and a little scary, I think. <laughs> Big responsibility. You know, and you, you touched a really good thing, which was uh, earlier on, you said, you know, people ask you, what should we do for the farmers in Puerto Rico? Yeah. And that the call to action is, is what we can do here. I mean, beyond, you know, working on land access policy, uh, is there other things you, you would call on, you know, organizations like ours in, in Minnesota, for example, uh, to be working on in, in solidarity? Well, I, I think that there, we, because we are living pretty much the same struggles, you know, in, in their local manifestations, naming Puerto Rico and farmers in Puerto Rico as, as one, you know, as, as part of that struggle where, wherever you are, you know, it's a way also of, of this, uh, making visible that we are together in the same fight. And, um, so, you know, talking with other people about it, it's important. There are many people who are, you know, trying to come to return and help here and having these conversations with anybody who is in that movement, movement, physical movement also about or, or share struggles is important. I mean, we are in support of the, of the right to self-determination. So, making that part of also of what you claim for for Puerto Rico, you know, decisions are being made by by people who are not really committed to staying here and working for the common good. I mean, when you see the documentary, these people are just just believing what they do and they just want to be able to do it. And if they are successful, everybody 
is going to benefit, right? And and I think that's part of the conversation we need to have. What farmers and you know people who work the land um, and do it sustainably, what they do is in benefit of to everybody. Not only because we have we assert our right to food, but also because the way in which we farm is also the way in which in which we care for the planet. Yeah, I mean, making sure that people know we're in this together is mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. Solidarity. If you are interested in attending a film screening on June 3rd or 4th, see the links on the podcast page for Ear to the Ground, episode 309, at landstewardshipproject.org. The June 3rd screening will take place at the Northfield Community Center in in Northfield at 700 Lincoln Parkway from 3 to 7 p.m., and the June 4th screening will take place at the Primero de Mayo Workers' Center in Minneapolis at 3521 East Lake Street from 3 to 7 p.m. At each screening, you'll have the opportunity to hear from Reyes Cruz and local beginning farmers about how they want to address the issue of land access and build community to create opportunities moving forward. Dinner will also be provided. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on whatever podcast platform you use. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 